You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's reading will be at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we do pray now that you would unsheath your sword, that the word of power, which is your word, uh, would go forth and do what it is meant to do, that you would wake us, that you would unstop ears, uh, Father, that you would conquer stubborn hearts. Father, we pray that you would even use me, your weak and frail messenger, to proclaim a word of power, because it is from you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening. I'm really, really glad to be back in this pulpit again with you this week. I'm so grateful for the incredible message from our brother Stephen Morales last week. Clint, Clint Moore, one of our other pastors. I'm Nathan, one of the pastors here. Clint and Patrick Gozier, our other staff guy here. And then Stephen, who preached last week, and his co-worker in Iglesia Reforma in Guatemala City, Oscar Morales, and about 60 others of us got together this week at Desert Springs thinking about the entire week of how to study and prepare to teach God's Word. Uh, this was our sixth year together. Each year, Desert Springs hosts a local chapter of the Simeon Trust uh, Workshop for Biblical Exposition, and each year we think through a, a genre of Scripture. So this being our sixth year together, uh, the, the last genre in the Bible that we had to go through together was apocalyptic literature. So this entire week we had a deep dive thinking through Revelation, Daniel, Zechariah, and perhaps something that was most surprising to me this week was that these authors in this genre are actually thinking about and writing about 
more often Jesus' first coming and what he did and accomplished in his cross uh, just as much or perhaps even more than, than his second. It was a great time. I, I love the Bible. I really love the Bible. And I love the Bible this Sunday more than I did last Sunday. Uh, so we're back here. We're back here to the gospel according to John after a, we did an intro to that two weeks and then we took a, a brief intermission with our brother Stephen last week. Uh, but John here is definitely more concerned with Jesus' first coming. What, what, what was accomplished and what happened in his first coming. And he's going to get right after it. Why Jesus came, what he came to do. Uh, it takes a little bit for the other gospel writers, for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to get into it. There's, there, there's a bit of a theological on-ramp that they're getting in, onto with genealogies and a bit for us to infer what they're meaning about his kingship and those kinds of things. But John, there's no, there's no time for genealogies or birth narratives. No time to waste. He is here to tell us and answer for us, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what did he do? So these actually will be the three questions for our structure tonight that we'll try to answer in the text that Skylar read for us in these first 18 verses. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what did he do? So first of all, who, who is Jesus? We already spent some time in these first few verses. Two weeks ago, we spent going through these first five verses, but that was, that was two whole weeks ago. It was practically a lifetime ago. And we've got a little bit more time this week to slowly digest some of this. So let's just read through these first five verses again, where John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Two weeks ago, we talked about how your words are distinct from you, but yet they are actually a, a pretty clear embodiment of who you are. And so right off the bat, Jesus is or John is welcoming us into a fuller and livelier understanding of the triune God, the triune life of God. The Word, Jesus, the distinct from the Father, yet creative, revealing, saving, judging, wise, uh, life-giving Word of God, was with God, so Jesus was distinct from God the Father, and yet was at the same time God. And you guys, this, this is just incredible incredible. This first verse of this gospel account, my, my kids are beginning to ask the questions that also kept me awake at their age, and sometimes now at my age, uh, questions about eternity. And I think rightly so, what's more difficult for them to process is not eternity future, yet eternity future, things that will have not, will have no end, will actually cartwheel your brain. Actually, what is more immense to get our minds to even begin to get our wrap around is the idea of eternity past. That though we, though the world, though the universe had a distinct point of beginning, God did not. This is a question that a skeptical member of my family once asked me. She said, if God created everything, then who created God? Right? And this is a, actually a very common philosophical question to ask. 
it's a real problem for her and perhaps many others because we just look around in the world, right? And everything has a cause. Nothing in the universe just is. Nothing in the universe just happens. It is a universe of causes and then necessary effects. These things happen because this first happened. But I actually think that an eternal and self-existent God that no one created, that has always been, actually makes more sense to explain her philosophical conundrum, right? I, I said to her, you're right. Everything does have an effect. Every, every effect has a cause, which is why there must be something in the universe that first started this string of effects. There's nothing in the universe that could happen unless something outside of nature, something above and outside supernatural that first caused things to happen. And while we'll never, at least in this lifetime, to begin to even begin to wrap our heads around the idea of eternity, the idea that God has always existed and that he had no beginning, this doctrine actually is, makes a great deal of sense and then is an enormous comfort to our soul. Because here's what John is saying. Jesus, the man that, John, the, the man that penned these words, Jesus, the man that he heard, that he saw, that he touched with his own hands, is that self-existent, eternal, first cause of creation, God. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who do some pretty surprising uh, textual gymnastics to explain why this text isn't actually saying what it is saying, that the word was perhaps a God or that the word was perhaps divine but not the God. No, this is exactly what John is saying. He is not a created being of the Father, but Jesus is actually equal in the Father's divinity. He is co-eternal with God. He is God. The man that I saw and heard and touched is the eternal God which had no beginning. And in fact, this verse frames John's and therefore our understanding of Jesus for the rest of the book. If one, one through three is not true, then the rest of John's gospel is heresy. The rest of God's, John's gospel makes no sense. But if one, one through three is true, then what Jesus says about himself in chapter 14, 9 makes total sense, where Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Like we said two weeks ago, Jesus is the one who is creating the universe by the word of his power. Is it true that God the Father uh, speaks and creates? God the Father is responsible for creation? Yes. Is it true that the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1 is the one that is hovering over the waters and is an active participant in the, in the creation of the world and the cosmos. Yes. But just as nearly all of the external works of God are triune acts, think of our very redemption. It's not just God who saves or just Jesus who saves or just the Holy Spirit who saves us. It is the triune work of God which saves us. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the one who has created the stars in the sky. The billions upon billions upon billions of stars in the sky. Jesus is the one who has created the amoeba and the molecule. Jesus is the one who has created you. This is not just some misunderstood carpenter who couldn't keep his mouth shut. He is the creator, self-existent, eternal God of the universe.
And not only that, but verse 4, all light and all life in the universe comes from him. He is the fountainhead, the source from which all life, from which all goodness, from which all beauty, from which all existence flows from him. And being light in and of of himself, Christ comes. More on that next. But if this is who Jesus is, the creative and revealing very God of very God, light and life, then why would he come? Why would he come to earth? Secondly, why did he come? Before John tells us, we get the short aside about John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8. So let's read that again, but we'll spend a lot of our time next week on John the Baptist. Not, by the way, not the same John who wrote this book, but a John the Baptist. We'll spend a lot of time next week, but let's read 6 through 8 again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. But then, verse 9, the true light... Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, like we've already talked about, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John is going to begin pairing heaven and light over and against the world and darkness. He does so here in chapter 1, and he's going to for the rest of the book. Heaven against the world, or the world really against heaven, and then light over and against the darkness, and this struggle throughout. This is, this is a theme that is beginning here. Jesus came into the world, to the world of darkness to give light and life, but the world did not know him. The world did not receive him. But the darkness cannot and did not overcome him. We tend toward thinking that light and darkness are opposites, right? Like tall, short, wide, thin, whatever, light, dark. That's actually not true. Light and dark are not opposites. Darkness is actually the absence of light. The darkness tried its very but futile best to keep the light out of the world. From the night of his very birth, where there was no room at the inn, and on to Herod's slaughtering of the innocent children, and then through the rest of his life, the world was against him. But the world didn't just decide to turn against God here. It wasn't that Jesus came and then the world decided, yeah, we're against, we're, we're against this kind of light. No, it's been so since the beginning. So we spent 20 weeks going through the book of Genesis together. Genesis 3 and on to today, the world stands in opposition against the Lord. At some point in all of our lives, we wanted nothing to do with God. At some point, we wanted nothing to do with God. Perhaps to a certain degree, some of that is true for us today. Perhaps that's entirely true of you today. We wished he didn't exist or that we hated that he did. We don't want him to be the way that he is and we get upset with him when he responds the way that he does. We shake our fist continually uh, against the heavens saying, "I, I will not sit under your rules for me. This is the world that we belong to, a world of darkness in stark opposition to the heaven of light. 
So the world was not in darkness merely because of the absence of light. That's true. But because we put up the blackout curtains. We wanted nothing to do with the light that was coming. Like Gollum hiding in the cave, hoping that no light would ever find him out. And then when light comes, actually exposing the darkness of our lives, we hate it, right? We don't want anything to do with this kind of and it's really interesting. I, I love how Tolkien kind of picks up on that theme of light and darkness. Like the light, there's actually no heat in the light, but it's painful. It's searing to Gollum because he hates it. And yet how true of us as well. He came to his own people, John tells us. He came to the Jews and they did not receive him, which we'll see play out through the course of Jesus's ministry in the book, this rejection from his own people. But before we catch even a hint of anti-Semitism from John or in our own hearts, in John's gospel, the Jews very often represent the world. They represent the rest of the nations which reject him as king. You and I don't have to be Jewish to reject Christ as king. You and I don't have to be Jewish to still push back against the goodness and grace of Christ as king. And the vast majority of the world still rejects Christ as king, both in our neighborhoods and the globe. So do not even read a hint of anti-Semitism here. It is the world of darkness, the world which was made through him and yet did not receive him. It was in darkness and we were without hope. And this is exactly why Christ came. The world being in darkness and without hope was the world that the light came to. Verse 9, the true light, which give light, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world to, to bring light to all men, which I think can only mean that the light of Christ comes to everyone without distinction. It, it draws a dividing line across the soul of every man. Those who hate the light and flee to the darkness or those who are drawn to the light and bask in its warmth. And what happens to those who welcome him? What happens to those who love the light? Verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the world of darkness, which stood in stark opposition to God, not all of the world rejected him, neither during his actual life and ministry nor today. For those who did receive him, for those who did not oppose him, but who believed him, he did not leave in the darkness. He did not leave to fend for themselves. To those, he gave the right to become children of God. And this verse really pushes hard against our understanding of what it means to be God's children, doesn't it? There is certainly a sense in which God loves all creation, and that he loves humanity as each one individually his image bearer. But the idea of God as father and we being his children is not something that we are inherently as humans, but is something that we become. We become his children. None of us are, verse 13, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will, are, we are not naturally his children by our birth, by flesh and blood. We are by flesh and blood and inherently by nature outside of the family of God. We are orphans without any right to claim 
of the Father what only sons and daughters can claim of the Father. But the end of verse 13, when we are born of God, as we'll later see Jesus explain in chapter 3, a, a second spiritual birth, that of being born again, being born of God, then we, we went from orphan now to child, to son or daughter, then we can call God Father, just as Jesus calls God Father. So Christian, do you believe, I mean like really, really believe that you are a son or daughter of the eternal, self-existent God of the universe. That's an amazing thing to even begin to try to wrap our heads around. It's really difficult, not just in a casual and routine kind of a prayer like, Father God, we just kind of pray that like, like this is just kind of a thing that we just talk about. God's, it's like a title that he's father. No, but like an actual father who really loves and cares for and provides for his children. Who doesn't seek to just pounce on them for every wrong thought or action. But the kind of father who slowly, who patiently wants to transform and shape our hopes, our desires, and yes, our actions do you really and actually believe that? Or is there still more of just the orphan crying out in your soul? More of the, that you need to perform to earn his approval, a distrust, a skepticism of, your, of his love for you, skepticism that he actually cares and will provide in the way that you need. That whatever he demands of you, you're, you're more motivated out of obligation than of love for your father. So Christian, if you have believed him, if you have received him, you are taking Christ at his word, which we'll get to know even more deeply of what he's actually saying in his word, and we've received his life, we've received his death as a substitute for your own, then God is your father now. Now. Not someday in the future when you get more of your life together. Not, not someday in the future when he, if, if and when he actually begins to respond and provide the way that you think he should. But God is your father now. And he is loving and providing for you better today than any of us could hope or imagine. One fourth century pastor many, many centuries ago wrote this. And why is it so hard to learn that God loves us? Beloved, it is extremely hard. Let us strive, therefore, to understand it. It is extremely hard to not only know, but to believe that God loves us as a father. So let's, over the course of however many more weeks we have together in this gospel, and then through the course of our life together as a church, strive together to understand the love of God. If you're not a Christian, then what I hope, what we've read so far, comes as a word of grace to you. As we'll see in just a minute, that, that you begin to understand just what it means that God is a God of love. That he desires to adopt wayward and rebellious orphaned children into his family. I hope that comes as a word of grace and of uh, persuasion, of, of attraction and calling to you. But I hope it also comes as a word of simultaneous warning. Because friend, this, here is the reality. 
you are still in the darkness. You are not safe, no matter how well you think you understand other people in the world, no, no matter how many degrees you have or how culturally savvy and disciplined you read the New Yorker or the Atlantic or something, whatever it is that you think that makes you wise in the world, friend, you're still in the darkness. You actually remain blind to the most important reality of sin and darkness and rebellion. You remain blind to the reality of grace and truth and love and knowing the very God who desires and is a father. Does that mean that Christians own a monopoly on grace and truth and love? That only Christians can actually understand these things because non-Christians are blind to these realities? Do Christians understand and practice these things perfectly? And do those who are not Christians never understand or never practice these things? No. Christians are weak. We fail all the time in these ideas of grace and truth and love. Thankfully, we aren't Christians because of our own goodness, because of our wisdom and ingenuity. And God in his kindness certainly doesn't let humanity spiral to as worse as, as the worst it could possibly be. We all have friends who are not Christians, who are very nice and good citizens. But when the light comes, when the truth of God's eternal goodness and holiness comes to us in Christ as a call to repentance, as a call to follow him and receive him, what is your response? When the light of God, through Christ, in his word and in his people, comes to you, what is your response? Defensiveness? Self-justification? Excuse-making? A, a quickness to list the good things that you've done in your life? Or even a drawing of the curtains and a hiding? Friend, I'd, I'd invite you, I would implore you, even warn you that this will not end well. Nor, if you are honest, is this kind of hiding from the darkness, actually bringing the kind of joy and meaning that life apart from Christ promises you? Is there joy in the darkness if we're honest with yourself? I pray that we would all know Christ more intimately, but perhaps tonight, for the first time, you might know him for the first time. If you're unsure of, about what any of that means, what life in Christ or a word like repentance or something means, come and talk to me. Come talk to Kyle. Come talk to any Christian that you might see taking from the Lord's table uh, after this or at the end of our service. Any of us would love to talk to you about what life in Christ, life in the light, the warmth of his light means and is. There's nothing that we want more than to know you as a brother and sister welcomed into the family of God. The good news of the gospel is that all of us are in need of it, but that all of us are welcome. Martin Luther says, God accepts only the forsaken. He cures only the sick. He gives light only to the blind. He restores life only to the dead. He sanctifies only the sinners. He gives wisdom only to the unwise. In short, he has mercy on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those not in grace. That's good news. Because that's all of us. But the prerequisite for receiving his grace is first recognizing and agreeing that you need it. So I would implore you to be honest with yourself and be honest about the reality of God 
and his son, Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? He is the creative word and light of God. Why did he come? To bring light to a dark world and to bring children into the family of God. But what did he do? What did he do while he lived on earth? Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Uh, One of you asked me recently a question that I long wondered too. Does this mean that Jesus didn't have a body before like Christmas night, right? Before this manger in Bethlehem? Does that mean in eternity past that Jesus did not have a body? Yes, that's what that means, which is what makes his becoming like us in the form of a baby so incredible. The eternal creator God took on kidneys and toenails and tears, incredible. This is like the top one or two most mind-blowing and unbelievable realities in the history of the cosmos. That the eternal God took on a body like ours that could get sick and die. Amazing. But then... An amazing nuance of what John says is kind of lost on us in our English translations of John chapter 1. The language that he dwelt among in verse 14 is more like he camped with us or he pitched his tent with us. Or even more literally, the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Which especially if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that makes no sense. Uh, But John is picking up on language and a theme throughout much of the Old Testament. As the people of God moved away from Egypt out of slavery and toward the promised land, God gave them a way for him to live with them and dwell with them as they moved. He had them build this incredibly precise, detailed tent that could be set up as a mobile temple as they moved. The tabernacle, this mobile temple, tent, this mobile temple, was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of forgiveness of sins, the place that God dwelled with his people. And it was the way that a holy God could live with a sinful people without totally destroying them through his holiness and their sin. God's word, as written on the, tam- on the tablets, they stayed there in the tabernacle as they stayed for a time and then moved on. And John says that Jesus did this. All of that that was true of the tabernacle now is true of Jesus in his incarnation, in his becoming a man. The word became flesh and he tabernacled with us. He became the tabernacle amongst the people, the word of God with his people. And he himself ultimately becoming the place of sacrifice, the place of the forgiveness of sins and the way that a holy God could live with his people without completely destroying them. God is doing what he has been doing with his people for centuries and living and moving with them, but now in an astronomically more personal way. In living and dwelling with his people, yes, but in a way that the people could touch. Not like in the days of old where if the people would even approach the mountain uh, too closely, if they would approach Certainly the holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple, they would die, but could approach him and touch him and be hugged by him. Amazing. 
And we have seen his glory, John says. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Again, if you had zero familiarity with Christianity, this was the first time reading anything from the Bible. This is the first time that you have uh, had any cultural exposure to Jesus Christ. You might assume that Jesus walked around like some, of, some kind of like a glow-in-the-dark, light-from-heaven superhero, right? He's the light of heaven come to earth. Surely he looked really crazy, at least like some medieval portrait with like some orb around his head, a halo perhaps. This is the light from heaven come to a dark world. Surely he looked like it, right? But as we've already read and as we'll continue to see, not everyone recognized, not everyone understood, not everyone even perceived his light, his glory. You know why? Because he took on flesh. He looked just like you and me. There was a hiddenness to his glory and his becoming flesh that John can say, we have seen his glory, but implying that many did not and many do not. And as we'll see unfold, the place of Jesus' highest glory in his, his, his death on the cross, his being exalted and lifted up. This is going to be great and amazing language that John is continue, going to continue to use throughout his gospel, that of the Son of Man being lifted up, but lifted up to the place of his death on a cross. This is where we see his glory, his highest glory, that is that he is a God who didn't just create He's not just powerful and majestic and holy and consuming, but he's a God that loves. He's a God of grace. He's not just this capricious and waiting to condemn out of irrational anger kind of God, but he's a God of truth. He's not this kind of willy-nilly, making it up as he goes along like we do kind of God. He's a God of grace and truth. And after dropping another breadcrumb of where we're headed with John the Baptist, John continues with this idea of grace. From his fullness, verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. I think we tend toward thinking that grace is something that we receive once at our first believing, right? We were in the darkness, we were this orphan, but now God gives grace and he moves us like positionally from darkness to light from orphan to child. But then, thank God for his his grace, now we can just all move along, right? That he saves by his grace, but now it's just kind of up to us by our sheer willpower to follow him in obedience as if grace were not needed. But that's not John's understanding of grace, and it's certainly not the New Testament writer's understanding of the Christian life. As we just talked about in the membership class, several new folks this evening, that the gospel of grace isn't just the entry point into the Christian life. It's not the door through which you walk and then you move on and away from grace. The gospel of grace is the entirety of the Christian life. Every moment of every day. Grace isn't just needed for our justification of our salvation, but grace is needed for our sanctification as well. Grace is needed for our becoming more like Christ. Grace which is God's patience, his kindness, his mercy, his love for his children, as John Newton would say, has brought us safe thus far, and it is grace that will bring us home. Again, Luther writes, this spring, the spring of God's grace is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything. 
No matter how much we draw from this spring, it never loses anything, but remains an infinite fountain of all grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. That's amazing. The more you draw from the spring, the more that it gives. He says that if you have a candle and you begin lighting other candles from this initial flame, even a hundred thousand new candles, the flame from this initial flame doesn't, or from the initial candle, it doesn't begin to lose its power, its energy. It just keeps giving. It keeps burning in and of itself and keeps giving. Burning and giving. Burning and giving. Brothers and sisters, don't stop drawing from this spring. Don't stop coming to the candle of his light for more and more light. If God is your father through your older brother Jesus, then he's not getting tired. He's not getting frustrated by your repeated uh, coming to him for forgiveness. He's not getting so frustrated that you're asking him again for the strength to obey him today. Don't merely try to muster up enough willpower for obedience this week. Enough willpower to read your Bible and pray. Actually pray tonight as you're falling asleep. Pray for grace. Pray for his kindness to actually experience his joy. Pray tonight, Father, give me grace to want what you want. And as we sang together, oh, for grace to trust him more. You guys realize that's a prayer, right? We've sung that lyric a lot of times, and I think when I was a kid, and I don't think I really realized what I was singing until a few years ago. Oh, God, for grace, that you would give me more grace that I might trust Christ more. That's a great prayer to pray tonight, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of your life. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Not just the thing that you believed a long time ago when you became a Christian at a summer camp and youth group, but today. And then actually realize and thank God that even in our time together tonight, all of this is grace. All of it. In our confession in our belief, in our remembering him at the table, all of this is grace upon grace upon grace that he reminds us who he is, that he reminds us of the gospel. So whether you're coming to the well tonight for the very first time, it's your, your very first splash of cool and refre refreshing water, or if you're coming for the 10,000th time, he will give and he loves to keep giving. The more you come to it, the more it gives amazing. And this water theme will continue throughout John. One place where he'll say, Jesus will say in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So come. Come to him and drink. And then before moving on to the narrative, John can't help himself but to give one more explainer for why Jesus came and what he came to do. He came to reveal the Father. Verse 18. While no one has ever seen God, the Father, Jesus, in the form of becoming a man, came to show us God, came to reveal who God is. So in a culture that's somewhat and pretty spiritual, a culture that has lots of opinions on who God is, on what he's like, what God wants for our lives, well, guess what? John says that we don't have to grope around in the dark. In the dark as a blind culture, kind of guessing at what we think God is, guessing at what we think he's like or what he wants for our lives. Do you want to know 
how we know what God is like, who he is, what he wants for our lives, look to Jesus. You want to know the Father? Get to know the Son. And Jesus will say and do plenty in this gospel that will confront and disrupt our cultural understanding of God. Jesus is going to say and do plenty to disrupt our perhaps own misunderstandings of God. So I hope that you'll stick around with this, that you'll get to know God through Christ, that as he reveals the Father, that you would know God, the triune God, all the more. I love that scene in Prince Caspian, when Lucy, again, for the second time, gets to look into the lion, the Aslan, his huge and wise face, and Aslan says, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're, you're bigger. And he says, he answers, he says, that's because you are older, little one. And she asks, not because you are? And he says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I hope this evening that Christ has begun to grow bigger in your vision. Whether perhaps for the first time tonight, there is now just a pinprick of light coming through the canopy of darkness. Or perhaps, certainly for those of you who have been loving and following Christ for decades, Christ is becoming bigger and bigger and nearly consuming your entire vision. But we pray that each week, on Sundays and then throughout the week with each other, that Christ will go bigger and bigger and bigger, that he would be our vision and he would consume it all. So let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, we confess and admit that even calling you that, uh, we take for granted that the creator God of the universe not only allows us to call you father, but that you actually are, that you are a good father who cares and provides for his children. Father, we pray that we would know you more, oh, for grace, that we would trust you more, we would love you more, and we would see you more clearly because we know, we understand, we love, and we see Jesus more clearly. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would ignite our hearts, that you would uh, provoke a greater love for your word, provoke a greater love for the Son to the glory of the Father. Triune God, we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of these things for your great glory and for our own joy and good. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.